It is almost exactly 12 months uh, since I left Sky Television to join GB News. And in the course of that year, I've conducted many hundreds of interviews. But one in particular really stood out. It provoked a flood of he emails. A handful contained the usual ritualistic crackpot denunciations, but most were united in praise. He is, they said, Britain's greatest living historian. Where's he been? Thank God he's back on our television sets. Well, he wouldn't thank God. He's a committed atheist, but we can't all be perfect. He is Dr. David Starkey, who I'm delighted to say joins me now. David, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it very thank much. You. It's clearly a divine miracle. <laughs> <laughs> um, let, let's start with down-to-earth matters yeah. uh, and a, I was going to say a godless state actor, but increasingly Vladimir Putin behaves like somebody divinely inspired. What lessons from history can inform our understanding of what's happening in Ukraine right now? Look, we should actually listen to people when they tell us what they're going to do. I and mean, this, is, this is the thing that is utterly astonishing about the whole phenomenon of the Ukraine. Putin has been saying now for years, I believe in Holy Mother, going back to your business about religion, I believe in Holy Mother Russia. I believe in the divine endorsement of the nationhood of the Russian people and the right to Russia to occupy its traditional frontiers. In other words, he sees himself as a czar, closely in alignment with the Orthodox Church, the Archimandrite, the Patriarch of which is either in his pocket or they're as closely allied as you know, another famous pair, Henry VIII and Cranmer. Um, and he sees in turn the uh, Russia as, again, we've forgotten these things, a naturally imperial power. The notion that we think that empire is dead, well, I'm afraid the British Empire may be dead. The Russians certainly isn't. The Chinese isn't. China is an empire. Problematically, and well, I'm sure we'll move on to that, increasingly identifying itself with the nationhood of the Han people, which, of course, the old imperial power didn't, because most of the emperors actually came from foreign dynasties, like the Manchu and so on. Um, but going back to Russia, so we've got, first of all, to believe people when they say something. Secondly, we've actually got to set aside our own prejudices. The great problem is that we've tended to assume, and of course it became very easy to assume after 1989, and we had all sorts of notions, Soviet Russia has collapsed, it is inevitable that the West will triumph, liberal democracy will sweep the world, the end of history, you know, has there ever been a madder essay than that of Francis Fukuyama? People so lapped it up, David. We lapped because we wanted to. And also, it offered us all sorts of excuses. We don't need armies. We're going to triumph anyway. We can tear ourselves apart. We can treat Russia as a, 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 as as a, a neoconservative laboratory. Or, or, as a, or as a little puppy dog. Um, we can treat Russia rather as Margaret Thatcher was accused of treating Scotland. Do you remember that with the poll tax? Um, we can see, oh, can we make a quick transition to and free, you know, from a state-regulated economy to a free market economy. And can we do something else, which is, can we, as it were, by letting Russia, by encouraging Russia, become a free market economy, of course, miraculously, it will discover democracy. It will discover human rights. It will become just like us. 
Now, you see, there is an utter fundamental problem here as well. We've is it got, a kind of vanity? It's a vanity. It's a vanity, again, I'm not, by the way, as much of an atheist as you think I am. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll get into that. It's the vanity of human wishes. It's a vanity of wish fulfillment. It's, again, the tendency of human beings to think that what they are, everybody is. It's the thing that, of course, as a historian, you're constantly fighting against in yourself and you're fighting against your students. You're saying to them, recognize other people have other values. Other times have other values. Other places have other values. And with Russia, that is, you know, preeminently something we should be doing. Um, and then finally, it seems to me, we've got to, we've got to recognize, as I said, this extraordinary arrogance of the West, which led to a complete dropping of guard. Right. But the fantasy that our way of life is a bit like McDonald's. It's for export and everybody wants it. This is a very, very important question. We've just had Tony Blair talking and um, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Um, uh, even, even, even a bit like me, really, um, except I'm not a knight of the garter. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but Tony Blair saying, um, you know, uh, what we should be doing, you know, the, the fact that we should be deploying power and effectively threats of power. Uh, yes, that's all very well. But Tony Blair illustrated with his adventures in Iran, uh, sorry, in Iraq uh, and in Afghanistan, the fundamental problem. There are societies which are not susceptible to the Western way of life. Our way of life, our notions of limited government, our notions of rights, our notions of free speech, our notions of tolerance are profoundly culturally rooted. They're rooted in our history. Is it because we are such an accidental exception? Is there something remarkable that happened 400 years ago, perhaps attached to the Reformation, definitely attached to really boring commercial uh, trading activities and legal safeguards and, uh, and patents and all that stuff, which meant actually we think what we considered to be normal was exceptional? It's totally extraordinary. And what is really striking, you know, Colin, look at who is taking on Russia. It is really just the Anglosphere. In other words, it is basically, again, the book that I've been getting obsessed about because of its role in prophecy is George Orwell's 1984. Now, we think of 1984 simply as this terrifying study of the relationship between tyranny uh, and totalitarianism and the individual. But it's also set in this extraordinarily conceived of frame of international relations in which the world has separated itself into three superpowers. Um, one of them is Oceania, and Oceania is us and America. It's the British Empire and America. Orwell sees it as having gone Ingsoc, having gone totalitarian socialist like the rest. It didn't. And it remains extraordinarily different. It's rooted in common law. It's rooted in the fact we're an island. America is an island. We're an island. This, one of the problems with the Ukraine is there are no frontiers. You're in this vast, infinite mm -hmm. plain across which countries, powers, tribes have raced for hundreds, if not thousands of years, there are no frontiers. We in England have a frontier, the sea. 
America has a frontier, the sea. We have not, England has not changed its frontiers seriously since the Norman conquest. If you were, I mean, did you see that wonderful comment on the place that's now called Le Vauf? This is the border city uh, on the extreme western frontier of the Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, bordering Poland. Somebody pointed out very interestingly that a person alive there could have been born under Austria-Hungary, got married under the Nazis, had children under Poland. Sorry, um, let, let me get there, the, but let's get the, let's get this right. Uh, could have been born, I'm, I'm, I'm missing one crucial state, could, could have been born in Austria-Hungary, got married um, uh, in Poland, um, um, uh, had children under the Nazis, and now lives in Soviet Russia and then the Ukraine, all in the same place without moving from the same place. The, there's, a, there's a wonderful book by Philip Sands, or if you read it, East Meets West, uh, and reminds us of these 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 changing territorial dispositions over over a very short period Tiny of time. Tiny periods of time, and also what we've also forgotten, Colin, is these gigantic movements of population. What happened was sometimes designedly within the Soviet oh, Union. I mean, always designedly. I mean, what we've forgotten is Stalin deliberately drove the frontiers of Russia further and further west. There were gigantic movements of population. You 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 take in great swathes of Poland into Russia, and Poland drives Germans out into Germany and moves its frontiers to the west. So you know, play, a place called Gdansk is really Danzig. Königsberg is, is Kaliningrad. The, so this, there's been this astonishing shift. We have had this stability. And also, of course, in Russia, uh, in most of the rest of the world, the tensions of history are naked. They are naked. They are unresolved. They're still bloody. They bleed. Mm -hmm. Here, and again, I'm now going to sound mystical, another point mm -hmm. about religion. We've got a history that extraordinarily resolves differences. And it's, to use an awfully grand term, it's a kind of Hegelian dialectic. Irreconcilables have been reconciled, to use a phrase you'll be familiar with, the lion lies down with the lamb. That, I mean, just look at it, think of it physically. I'm standing with my back to the National Gallery, okay? I'm looking over Trafalgar Square. Immediately to one side of me, there is a statue to the king whose overthrow in 1689 is the beginning of the development of that Anglosphere that you talk about, James II, commemorated by a wonderful statue by Grinling Gibbons. Directly opposite me, at the top of Whitehall, there is a statue of the king who had his head cut off, <laughs> Charles I. And at the bottom of Whitehall, when you've actually got to the Houses of Parliament, looking back up at Charles I is Oliver Cromwell, who cut his head off. Now, you see what I mean? This is a history in which we don't tear down statues, or at least we didn't till very recently, because we recognize that we're descended from both sides. Each one of us is both a bit of a roundhead and a bit of a royalist. And I would even argue that this is true, although the truth has been suppressed, on slavery. Yes, in, for a time in the 18th century, we were a major slaving power. We are also the only country that deliberately abolished slavery, not only in Britain, not only in the British Empire, but throughout the world against immense opposition from France, from particularly Portugal and Brazil, 
and from America. I mean, can I tell you a nice little story? Mm. Everybody goes on, isn't it disgraceful that when slavery was abolished, the slave in Britain, the slave owners were compensated, but these slaves weren't. Let me tell you the story of, of I never know how you pronounce it, um, H-I-T-I, uh, -I. is it Haiti? Is it Haiti? Haiti. Is Haiti, right. Well, that was Saint-Domingo, Saint-Domingue, the French colony. It becomes independent uh, from France, and it, uh, as it were, its slave population is free. There was a huge slave revolt, and thousands That's of right. French oh, and settlers ter were, were murdered. I mean, Toussaint uh, Louverture and all the rest of it. But this is the, the more interesting point, is when they finally get their independence, do you know what they had to do? They had to pay France 125 million gold francs. And this desperately poor country didn't finish paying it off until 1947. And Napoleon, the great vehicle of reform, reimposed slavery hmm. in Saint-Domingue. So do you see what I mean? We have, even in this area, although Black Lives Matter and whatever will not admit it, we have a radically different history. America, less so the United States less so. I mean, clearly the, you know, the grand claims of the Constitution to universality, you know, the, the full rights of man mm -hmm. and all the rest of it, jar very awkwardly with the actual nature of the revolutionary settlement and the, the whole history of, of, of the, the, the long, long perpetuation of slavery, the, the way in which uh, reconstruction after after the American Civil War, uh, again, deliberately suppressed blacks and so on. That's a much more difficult history. And one of the problems, I think, has been that, that, that the, you know, a significant political part of the uh, black population in Britain still thinks of itself or has reimagined itself as being American. It's, as inheriting, it's an extraordinary thing. It's, it's an extraordinary it is thing. bizarre thing. I, I, David, I've, I've mentioned TikTok. No, no, yeah. it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I'm, I'm loath to interrupt you. I've literally got a dozen points that I want to pick up with. I'll start at the very top uh, when we were talking about Putin and that idea of the sacralization of his regime. He's trying to make it a sacred invasion. As, uh, as Stalin did. Well, I, I always object to this idea, and it's just an obvious point, really, that, you know, religion's the root of all wars, and when it's so, so, so self-evidently one of the reasons sometimes, and often just a, a form of camouflage, it's often about ego and territory and water and food and territorial ambitions, etc., etc. And we know, don't we, that the... the, the, the quote, great wars of the 20th century that claimed tens and tens of millions of lives were inspired by rampant forms of atheism. And if anything, I can make the case for saying religion damped down some of those enthusiasms. Um, but it does seem extraordinary that Putin is, is using the cloak of religion to do what he's doing. Anyway, can, can I just offer you an yeah. explanation? The point is, if you actually look at both Mao, in terms of the, the horrors of what go on internally in China, tens of millions. Mm. I mean, deliberately. Mm. Stalin, 10, perhaps 20 million. I mean, the, the Including millions of Ukraine. The, the figure, but what you've, got, what you've got to remember is that what you say are these totalitarian and uh, atheistic ideologies are, in fact, presented with the enthusiasm of religion. When the webs go, the you know, extraordinary couple who founded the institution that I misspent much of my working life in, the London School of Economics, when they went to China, uh, sorry, when they went to the USSR, they wrote this extraordinary book called The, 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 uh, the Soviet Union, 
colon, a new civilization. That was the first edition, and it had a question mark. The second edition drops the question mark. <laughs> and what they point out is that the Communist Party, they claim, is the equivalent of the Jesuits. And there's no... Stalin trained to be a priest. He did. He was a seminarian. He was a seminarian. And you bring the same degree of passion. And of course, this is the essential point of the great difference between Stalin's Russia and Putin's Russia. Stalin's Russia had this ideology, which just like Catholicism or just like some kinds of Protestantism, commanded passionate allegiance. In other words, when Russia takes over Eastern Europe, it found willing stooges because these people believed in, in communism as a religion. Why is Putin equipped with the atom bomb? He's equipped with the atom bomb because spies in America communist spies, this notion that there were no reds under the bed and that it was all, you know, McCarthyism or whatever is not true. R the most catastrophic act of the 20th century is the betrayal of the secrets of the Manhattan Project, which gives Russia that equipoise. Why can't we do anything about Stalin? Because we have the nuclear standoff. So you see, totalitarianism becomes the equivalent of a religion. If you actually look uh, a bad religion, in the same way woke is a perverted religion, the religious impulse doesn't need God. And you get priesthoods, you get credos, you get above all inquisitions, you get punishments. Um, and so in some ways, what we're now seeing is that wonderful phrase of G.K. Chesterton, you know, when you stop believing, believing in, in God, God, you, you don't believe, believe in nothing, nothing. you, you believe, believe in anything. anything. Uh, and we're seeing that. So I think what Putin is, why Putin's gone back to orthodoxy is, of course, that once communism died, you had to find another credo. David, you're ruining my, uh, my plan for this interview. Because I'm <laughs> sorry. Mean, it's terrific. But on the point about nuclear weapons, one thing that struck me over the last fortnight and more in talking about Ukraine has been the sense in which the liberal Western sensibility is stamping its feet metaphorically because Putin's just crossed another red line, but red lines are just rhetorical meaninglessness when he's got nuclear weapons. Of course. We're really cross that he's, Ooh, he's, he's, he's bombed these Why, why can't corridors. we put him on trial? We're, why can't we be, put him on trial straight gonna, away? We're going to be even crosser if he uses chemical weapons. We'll be really, really cross if he uses nuclear weapons. But at no point as he crosses these red lines and boundaries can we do any more. He's already decided may as well be hung for a sheep as for a lamb. Because he's got nuclear weapons. Precisely. And there's nothing we can do about it. And there's, there's a sense unless of profound impotence unless in the West. Unless we dare to answer like for like. And this is the catastrophe of having a president like Biden, who clearly musters no sense of power. One of the things that's gone most terribly wrong with the West after 1989 is that we've decided, because we don't believe might is right, we've therefore decided might itself is a bad thing. Colin, right needs might. You could, the, the, sake, this is what is being demonstrated by Zelensky. The only reason that this place hasn't been crushed to atoms already is his courage, his straightforward, butch, manly, totally unnew man, take your shirt off and go and fight courage. Um, and again, have you noticed it's women and children first? You know, it's, there's something, in that sense, there's something profoundly old-fashioned which I, reproves I, us. Can I offer this as well? It struck me, Zelensky's uh, not backwards in coming forwards when it comes to talking about peace and uh, negotiated peace. And, I, and from the very get-go, I, 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 I've been trying to interview people and saying, look, um, this will need to be resolved 
not amicably, this is it's impossible to resolve it amicably, the body count is far too high. But at some point, if you don't want the body count, body, body count to rise even higher, you've got to treat, you've got to parlay, you've got to discuss. Now, he is now saying, maybe not, maybe no to NATO membership, uh, realist, uh, what was the word he used in the last 24 hours? There's, there's a realistic chance of some kind of negotiated settlement. Had he not been the sort of warrior leader that he's been, I would suggest to our viewers and listeners that actually his negotiating position would be much weaker. It'll there be will be hawks. There will be hawks in his in his party who would say, "Let's get rid of this guy." But because he's hung tough, he can now make the peace. Absolutely. But you see, the problem is, again, it's this stupid notion that there's a thing called international law or there's a thing called universal human rights. There aren't. There can't be. These are, these are wish fulfillments. These are nice notions that wouldn't it be lovely if. This is the, this is the world, frankly, of fairy story and make-believe. And the trouble is we've persuaded ourselves they're real. I mean, has there ever been a more ludic, lunatic notion than the idea we're going to put Putin on trial? Can I just gently offer all of these people who are now shocked by what I'm saying a little remark from another rather successful dictator, which is a certain Joseph Stalin. He said, winners don't get put on trial. First of all, what you've got to do is you have to defeat Putin, yes, but you have to do something else. You have to inflict absolute unconditional surrender on Russia. When Churchill began indeed the processes against, um, against Hitler in 1942, he was able to do this for the very simple reason Britain's war aims from the beginning were the absolute unconditional surrender of Germany. Can anybody imagine a circumstance in which you can force unconditional surrender on a nuclear power? So the trouble is we're dealing with a world of complete make-believe. Mm -hmm. Can I put another little point to you? Have you noticed the immensely important role of the United Nations in peacekeeping? <laughs> Have you seen the triumphant progress? Can, I'm going to get you. What is the name of the Secretary General of the United Nations? Antonio Guterres. Have you actually seen him? Heard of him? I discovered it took me an no. immense amount. Ian Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, is getting a lot more ah, play because, because they've got guns. Because they've got guns. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the the, the business of, of of poor poor Mr. Antonio. He delivered a speech which ended was, "We need peace. Thank you." And the same day, well, he just one second. It's wonderful. The same day, he issued an important statement on the end of the international year of fruits and vegetables. <laughs> that is. It was it was Joseph Stalin who said, "How many divisions does the Pope have?" Exactly. Words don't don't move anything. No, ultimately, no, no, when no, push no, comes no, to shove, absolutely, they butter no parcel. Let's uh, let's um, let's go back to uh, to slavery. I say that not because I think it's an important topic, but actually, it's in the news today, and I want to make this as contemporary as possible. It's not difficult. You can pick up the paper most weeks, and there's a, there's something related to this area. The National Museum of Wales, or at least the, the, the National Museum in Wales that's got a, uh, an outpost in Swansea, is going to relabel Richard Trevithick's uh, steam engine, or part of, the, part of the sort of steam engine story that he contributed to. He's a Cornishman, not a Welshman, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a model of one of his engines in Swansea. And they want to relabel it. He had no, link at all, no links at all with slavery, derived no income from it. So it's not a case of money came in from the Caribbean. He then put that into research that produced the steam engine. There's, the, the argument's it was been advanced. Cornish tin mines. Well, 
The argument that's been advanced is the steam engine itself became the engine of colonial oppression and the means of suppressing the natives. That's where we've got to. The, 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 I've argued before, you've argued you know, clearly much more eloquently than I ever could, this idea that the Industrial Revolution, which was this acme of everything that this accident of the West brought to bear, no, this accident of Britain. This accident of Britain specifically. Let's sorry, own it. No, let's it own it, David. Really You're is, absolutely right. This it's accident, the accident of Britain. Of Britain. And, and also, you know, it, w the blood, sweat, and tears of our forebears who 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 made the, made the experiments. The children who suffered in the factories, uh, the explosions that happened in tin mines in Cornwall, whatever it was, uh, it, it was not a smooth path, but it was a unique one based on the genius and the wits of the let's people of these to, islands. Let's go back to the root. Now we're disowning it. Yeah, but let's go back to the relation between slavery and industrialization. It is completely the opposite of what they say. The point is very, very simple. The only reason the British Empire was able to abolish slavery was because we began to make human labor redundant. Slavery is universal in the absence of machines. It's really terribly, terribly simple. And also, if we're going to apply a very, very simple fact, presumably if you say that the steam engine is the vehicle of imperialism or whatever, you do have a little problem of chronology. That is to say that the first steam engines to cross the Atlantic are in the 1830s and the 1840s when we had already abolished slavery. And the first thing that they were used to do when they were adapted to the Navy was to make sure that not only we abolished slavery, but you stopped the slave trade and stopped everybody else trading in slaves too. So there's a com completely antithetical, it's, a, it's totally the opposite. You can make a case and it's proper to make the case that the, um, the temporary importance of the West Indies and of course a slave-driven, a slave-based economy does power some of the extraordinary economic growth of Britain in the early 18th century. There can be no argument that that is true. The great question is, what is the proportion of that as you move forward? And you can look at another very interesting story, which is that of Penryn in Wales, which is another place which is now profoundly in doubt and debated for two reasons. The first is the family had been a West Indian slaving family and they get compensation, and it's quite a considerable sum, about £10,000. They then become an enormous, huge producer of Welsh slate. And if you actually look, the proportions of that slave wealth to the Welsh, uh, to the Welsh slate wealth, in a single year, they will make 10 times the entire amount that they received in compensation off the back of whom? The white Welsh miners, the slate miners, those working in these appalling conditions, hacking the stuff out, splitting it, transporting it, shifting it, and roofing the Victorian it's world. Not, it's not a part of the story of our explanations of slavery that people want to hear. There is a profound incuriosity about other answers to the slavery story. I mentioned right at the beginning the interview that my first interview with you here at GB News and the mailbag I, I saw, the bulging mailbag as a consequence. But the thing I took away from it and stayed with me and stays with me still, because I'd not come across it before, was your explanation of what the Ottoman Empire was doing within it, the context of its slave trades. And I, you know, I'm 53, well, reasonably well educated. I've lived a life within journalism. I'd never heard of that. I'd never heard. That is the genuine that. genocide. What we have to understand 
is that the Atlantic slave trade is, of course, monstrous, as slavery always was. But by the way, slavery is universal. Empire is universal. The reason that the Spanish, the British, and whatever were able to conquer with tiny numbers of troops, vast areas in the New World, in India, and whatever, is you were taking over crumbling native empires. So the reason that the Spanish can conquer you know, uh, Latin America with about 200 troops is that you decapitate the Inca Empire and you decapitate the Aztec Empire. Similarly, Clive of India simply decapitates the Mughal Empire. Mm. So you do, you, 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 you do that game. But the, 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 the whole question of the Ottoman Empire is something we have just eliminated from our minds. So the slavery that goes to, to America should really, if we're using this model, which is taken from Jewish history, again, there's a really important point to be made here. One of the reasons why there is the repeated left attack on Jews is that Jews enjoy if you, that's the right word, thanks to the horrors of the Holocaust, they enjoy a unique status of victimhood. Mm. And of course, victimhood is the ultimate currency of the left. There's a hierarchy of victimhood. And you can see there's a passionate resentment that the Jews really, because of the Holocaust, come unquestionably top. So there's a rather serious attempt uh, in the form of some black intellectuals to somehow dethrone the Jews from that position and say, well, actually, hang on, slavery is a genocide. Uh, of course, this is nonsense. The slavery, the 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 the, the well, it may be West. true, but it just wasn't a one-off. Well, just one moment. Uh, the 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 slavery of of the of the of the, of the Middle Passage, the crossing of the Atlantic, was horrible. You were dealing with fifteen twenty percent casualties, but actually, that wasn't often the case on an ordinary passenger ship. They were you know, some hideously rough experience in those circumstances. But it's really, if you want Jewish history, it's the Black Diaspora. It is the distribution of blacks throughout the world. I mean, the, the figure is about 300,000 slaves go to the 13 colonies. There are already 500,000 by the time of independence. So it's a funny sort of genocide where they've increased nearly 50%. If you want a genuine genocide, it's slavery, as you said, to the Ottoman world. And the numbers are colossal. The, the numbers are at least 10 million. Maybe 15, These maybe were predominantly more. Europeans? Uh, pardon? But they were predominantly Europeans, North Africans? No, 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 they they're African. It's black African. It's predominantly black African. And, and, this, and the thing that's astonishing is you've then got to say, well, come on, um, you know, 10, 15 million black Africans go to Turkey. You don't see many of them. There's a very simple reason. The men were castrated. And when the children, uh, when, when their Ottoman masters slept with the black women in the, in, in the harem and whatever, and you produced a mixed-race child, it had its brains dashed out at birth. This is genuine genocide. And the bizarre infatuation of radical, radical black movements, you know, like Malcolm X and whatever, with Islam is one of the most extraordinary, bearing in mind this history, one of the most extraordinary you know, conjunctions of opposites that you can possibly think of. We, we, need, we need proper understanding. I don't see any of this with gloating. These are tales of horror. But if you'd have a story of horror, well, I'm afraid we need to see the whole picture. What does this tell us about your discipline of history? Does it tell us that actually the history will always be partial, politicized, sub reasonably subjective, because your, your uh, overview that you're offering us is utterly iconoclastic. 
to, to in most you know, the history that my teenage daughters are taught totally. see, has no room for your perspectives. And does that in other mean words, it's got no room for the truth. There is a thing called the truth. I'm sorry, I'm very old fashioned. There is a thing called the truth. It's the gr one of, the, again, I've been going on about Orwell. It's one of the great themes of 1984. Two plus two equals four. The whole world of 1984 is designed to stop you thinking that. It's designed to persuade you, like woke, that a man can become a woman. You can't. It's designed to say silence is violence. Oh, no, it's not. We've got to Diversity learn. Diversity is strength. Unity is weakness. All of this. We've got to learn to use words properly. They are, are attached to things. They're hard. This, this is a wonderful quality of Orwell's prose. It's the thinginess. It's the nobliness. It's, it is superficially smooth. It flows perfectly as a literary structure. But all the time, you're kicking your kicking your toes on things, on facts, on the inconvenient. Can we, let's just take a little digression into, into Orwell's new speak from 1984. And I was talking to somebody yesterday about my tribe, not your tribe, my trade, not yours, of journalism and the laziness, the, 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 the semantic laziness, the imprecision. And Orwell says you must, the reason you need a wide vocabulary and you must understand the words that you use is they define very clearly the thought. And from the thought sometimes comes liberation. And I was, I hear, I mean, to take one example at random, the word devastation, devastated. Journalists now only seem to have the one word to describe what used to be described by about a dozen different words with very precise meaning. So now someone is devastated. A place has been devastated. This is really lazy. I thought it's it was usually than... decimated, wasn't it? Well, well <laughs> you know, but at well, least that's got a very specific well, meaning. No, 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 but it doesn't. In fact, it's completely lost its specific meaning. And language does that. We get that. But, you know, I'm coming back to Orwell and this. And, and we are become, we are, our, our means of passing the world around us through language as we move into this strange post-literate culture that we've created is, is diminishing. I'm going I'm to park that digression. You, you said something earlier about the way we tell history. And it made me think about the sorts of television programs my, my children watch. And in particular, I'm struck increasingly by the sense that there's a real attempt by TV producers at very similitude. They want to make that Georgian high street look as as exact as it might have been, but they don't give a toss about the language that the protagonists are using. Or indeed what the protagonists look like. Have you noticed they all have perfect teeth? They have immaculate <laughs> complexions. What's going they've on? Clearly, What's they've going on there? They've what? clearly been showered regularly. Does that, not, does that, that not you off? Does that not I just laugh my head off. Uh, there's an absurdity about the thing. So you get all the, all the detail right and all the big picture wrong. And the whole thing just turns into an exercise of interior decoration. Yeah. This, is, this, is, this is television as interior decoration. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's a great problem with, with most historical novels. Very, very few actually manage to convey in any sense the sheer strangeness. Mm the sheer difference of that world. And instead, of course, it's us in fancy dress. Totally. I mean, have you noticed now, every woman in the past has got to be feisty. 
They've got to be liberated. I mean, even serious historians, I mean, rather impressive historians, are constantly sort of, oh, you know, the queens of Henry VIII were all really independent, important figures. No, they weren't. Uh, they were his wives. And the only reason that they matter at all in history is because his eye happened to let her. It's also, them. I just find it also boring and predictable. Of course. You know, and this complete displacement of the role of religion, for better or for worse, it was an absolute preoccupation. It's utterly central. Um, it's utterly central. I, the other thing that annoys me, of course, uh, 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 you know, like it does many middle-aged so it's Are you lying on a couch at this point? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm coming to a relevant point here, but it is, I think, I hope. Which is, I've got with, my with, pad here. You're like, <laughs> I, can, I can take notes and burble sympathetically <laughs> in German. Don't, just don't bill me. Um, the, um, you know, when, uh, and it's a genuine source of conflict in my home when I'll, you know, the, the kids will be watching Poldark set in, you know, 250 years ago in, in, in Cornwall. And here's a, here's a remote rural tavern but the the wench behind the bar serving the tankards of ale is black and i'm saying guys no no but dad she might have been statistically the word this you know one percent of the london population 250 years ago was was black like, well yes but this 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 attempt to, at salting all crowd scenes all locations with uh, what's behind it what, what, this wishful thinking that's, that's this I, I get it this desire to say look actually you're, we've you're always part been of like this, this. we've always been we've always been like this and it's utterly untrue and what it does of course it in one sense it diminishes the remarkable achievement of our accommodating this without really serious trouble and more than the odd nasty riot or two like 2011 um, and I think this again is a testimony to an almost uniquely adaptable society and this, again, seems to me to be something we should be, to use another word that you're fond of, preaching. That, that what we've done, we've been so concerned, again, another nice biblical phrase, um, to, 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 to see the moat in our own eye, that we've completely forgotten the beam in that of other cultures. Um, this, this perpetual obsession with what we've done wrong, where we've gone wrong. I mean, I think we've gone wrong very badly in recent times. What I think is astonishing is if you look at the general course of English history, how we were able to avoid revolution. Now, the moment you say that, the left immediately say, oh, that's why we're so corrupt. This is why we're a class-ridden society. Have they ever bothered to think of the utterly terrible consequences of revolution? Russia is a product of revolution. China is a product of revolution. Um, France, even with the absurd performances of both Macron, Zemmour, and Le Pen, is a product of revolution. Revolution is an abomination. It is vicious, it is destructive, it destroys legitimacy, and the worst thing of all, it merely replicates the worst features of the Ancien Regime. Napoleon just wants to be who? He wants to be Louis XIV, but you know, within a new fashion and with better armies. We see it with Putin. They're still czars. Cheesy, or however he pronounces his name, is m clearly a mad emperor in exactly the same way that, uh, an able but mad emperor in exactly the same way that Mao was. Uh, and similarly in China, it's very clear that the Communist Party fulfills the same function as the Mandarinate, as a traditional civil service of China, which held it together 
held this extraordinarily mm. conflicting, wildly commercial, um, utterly individual, in some ways, utterly individualistic society. I know there is a theory of Confucianism well, which mm. does precisely the opposite. But, but, but uh, you know, the, the Mandarin was the... The, the, you know, it, it, it's both the connective tissue and it's the yeah. glue and it's the fetters. And if you look at the civil service exams now that Chinese precise, are exactly the same of the of the most ferocious difficulty, which of course is why they're so well governed as opposed to the load of incompetent, half functioning classicists that inhabit White Horse. They're ruled by engineers. Well, it's, it's the ultimate peak meritocracy yep. and I'm not always a fan we're both products of the, the meritocracy to some degree like, we, but, mean. <laughs> <laughs> like you um, but, but I mean there's an, there is an argument against the meritocracy maybe yes. we'll come maybe we'll come back to that um, I just want to talk about the, our royal family as, and as uh, it's in the context uh, of what uh, we're just the talking shift about. from meritocracy <laughs> well no no in terms of who <laughs> governs and absolutely governs and and as we walk through the wreckage of recent royal stories whether that's Prince Andrew or Prince Harry I, I, you know, I am a monarchist, a former royal correspondent as well, but I am a monarchist. And I say to people, and you know this better than almost anybody, that there are good kings and bad kings and, and, and lousy princes and, and great princes. And you either sign up to the institution or you don't, you know, and because of the danger otherwise is you lord the queen and detest the prince who's coming. And I fear we're heading into that situation. And I, and I, and I worry because I believe part of the rationale for, for royalty is as this ballast that just holds the executive in in a kind of balance in some way or at least offers a off, off well look it offers what does it offer it offers theoretically but that's no longer well, the case. that may be that may that may be true but at moments of national high national anxiety or joy you you can look to someone an institution which has no obvious political capital mm, gains to be made be. in the opinion yeah. polls but it hasn't got to worry about an election and i think also more than that and even this is true to some degree even of the sort of harry andrew stuff that it is this national family and if you don't see it as the apex of some societal structure and i don't if you see it as a sort of nationalized family on which the human condition is played out as a soap opera you know, it, it's divorce, it's love, it's jealousy, it's the prince having a go again at the older brother. We've seen this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then I don't want to say you can enjoy it. You can learn from it. It serves a purpose. My point is, these are all reasons to have a royal family that have got nothing to do with how much you like the Queen or, or, or are anxious about Prince Charles. And I worry that that argument's been lost, that natural advocates of the royal family are not articulating that argument. They just say, oh, the Queen's jolly nice. Well, that won't help the institution survive for the next 200 years. I agree completely. You see, again, Roger Scruton made a fascinating point. It's derived actually from Hegel. that monarchy is the most natural form of government. And the, the explanation of that is, first of all, of course, it's the most traditional. And in the case of Britain, England, it is the one from which everything derives. We're still really ruled by the royal prerogative. Parliament is a kind of add-on to this process, but it goes much deeper than that. And the very arbitrariness, the very absence of meritocracy, the fact that it is just there, you see, in a fundamental way, symbolizes culture. Again, our arguments coming very interestingly full circle. The great problem with the uh, notion of, of a rules-based world, of a law-based world, of everything based on consent and rights is, of course, it goes back to the idea that somehow we are born free. This phrase that's Rousseau, that's the American Declaration of Independence. Come on, you're both a father as well as religious. You know how utterly 
false it is. I've never, I've we, never had, we, I've never even understood the phrase we, accident of birth. We, I've never understood no, no, it. It doesn't mean but it. But we, we are not born free. We are born, as you know, as Saint Augustine said, I'm afraid between that we that we are helpless and we are dependent for months, if not years. Now, that is also a statement about our culture. We don't make our culture. We don't make our politics. We inherit them by definition. We get our sense of values. We get our sense of political relations, our sense of social relations, that which we love, that which we hate. It is actually there. It's a datum. It's a given. And because we've so much emphasized will and choice and contract, we've forgotten these absolute fundamentals. So monarchy is a kind of symbol, properly understood, of the way in which we actually absorb everything. It stands there as a kind of human representative of the historical crucible or the soil. Um, this, this, one of the, the things that constantly goes through my mind when I first read it years and years ago, it just ran through my head like electricity. It's Geoffrey Chaucer right at the beginning of this extraordinary intellectual transformation that you know, we call the Renaissance Reformation, whatever, at the, end of, at the end of the 14th century. He talks about old fields from which new corn springs and old books from which new learning comes. You know, extraordinary. So the past isn't dead. The past isn't a prison. The past isn't fetters. It's a fertile soil. You grow out of it. Our experience is organic. Our experience isn't that of a calculus. It's organic. And we have to understand that. But again, because we teach so badly and we teach history Nowadays, just really as 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 as, uh, as a series of slogans, as no more. And in one sense, this is always the case. I mean, have you not noticed with Putin, the argument is historical that this is the authentic Russia that he's wanting wanting to restore. Now, there was a very interesting article, uh, quite I think it was yesterday in the Telegraph by my friend Andrew Roberts, saying, "Oh, isn't this absolutely preposterous? You know, this is going back to the time of the Wars of the Roses. We, of course, have grown out of all that kind of thing." I wonder if Andrew has thought a bit about the claim of the Jews to Israel. I think it goes back to the Old Testament. In other words, the notion that, uh, that you know, as it were, the past is this kind of thing that you just draw a line under. The reason we can draw a line under it in England or have been able to draw a line under it in Britain is precisely because these disputes have been reconciled. What about the Scots? I'm afraid the Scottish nationalists are looking back to Bannockburn, if you remember, mm. Blueface mm. and all the rest mm. of it. And they are arguing that the whole of this history of reconciliation and union between England and Scotland, beginning with the Union. We were talking about monarchies in, in 1604 and then going on to the actual Union of Parliaments in 1707, and which, you know, the, the, the Union of Parliaments in 1707 is one of the most extraordinary acts in human civilization. You, you, Scotland was bankrupt. Um, it had ruined itself with, with imperial an adventures. Or imperial what? adventures. I mean, the idea that the Scots opposed colonization, you know, that the thing they were desperate for was they just, to get they just didn't do it very well. They did it extremely badly until they became the subalterns of the English Empire when they did it extraordinarily well, at least uh, from the point of view of the, of the imperial power and possibly rather unpleasantly from the point of view of the, of the subject people. But, but if you actually look at the terms of union, 
really, this, the Scots Nats go on about as though it's English colonization. Scotland in 1707 preserves its own system of law, its own right to issue notes and currency, its own, um, its own uh, social system, its own educational system, its own church, hmm. its own court, its own crown jewels. That's the reconciliation. Only, the only that is accommodation, isn't Astonishingly, it? the only thing that you unite uh, the, is parliament. What does Blair do with devolution? You tear apart the only thing that united England and Scotland, which was the political bond of parliament. I mean, if you could have had, you know, it is the problem with the Blair government that it was consciously not simply unhistorical, but anti-historical. Its consequences are catastrophic. And it's only with the, the history. I don't know how long you have to stand back. But when I look back at that Blair government now, and you know, Blair, there was a lot that was attractive about Blair. He, he wore power very well. But you think back to the Equality Act. You think back to immigration from the accession countries, much of which was good. But, you know, 10 million people in 20 years was difficult for any country of our size to absorb. You think about the Iraq war and you think about how history looks at something like Angela Merkel, you know, the doyenne of European leaders. Until now, you manifestly realize, a catastrophe. Uh, exactly. But it's only over a period of time with this fantasy. In retrospection selection, can we say that was the day. T.S. Eliot. And the, the, the point, I think, is also, you know, you've touched it perfectly. I mean, how Blair dared to comment on Putin is beyond me. Because, of course, he went into Iraq with no more legal authorization than Putin went into the Ukraine in terms of his beloved international law. And his motives, well, of course, he would say, my motives were to remove a wicked dictator. I think that's more or less what Putin was saying about Zelensky. Uh, my motives were to restore a proper structure of government. See what I mean? And it is the West, again, what we've got to do, we've, we've not only got to try to understand other people according to their own values, we've got to try to see ourselves as they see us. What is really striking, if you look at the United Nations at the moment, everybody's been going on about, oh, Boris Johnson, oh, the world stands united against Putin. No, the world doesn't stand united against Putin. Have you looked at who has not supported the resolutions? Obviously, China. Uh India, pa Pakistan. Pakistan, who we give a quarter of a billion pounds yeah, in foreign let's aid. Let's just continue. India, Pakistan, South Africa, Brazil pretended to and then immediately renounced uh, the whole business uh, of sanctions. Why? Because all of these countries see us as hypocrites. They see us as imperializing hypocrites who are using the doctrine of, of universal human rights simply to impose Western values on them. And you know, again, we have completely underestimated the intelligence. We think of Putin just as some kind of thuggish dictator. He was, and probably still is, a highly intelligent man. That extraordinary rhinoceros in spectacles, uh, Sergei uh, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, he has wooed the world at the United Nations. Mm. He has come up with all of these clever doctrines, like, oh, there's no international right to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries on the humanitarian grounds. He has come up with the notion, well, you know, uh, the, 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 that we are now in a multipolar world, that they it isn't simply um, a United States as world policemen. We've all got, you know, our, our, our 
all us, uh, Russia, China, um, uh, India, whatever, we are part of a concert of powers and we've all got to, all got the right to a share at the top table. But the most ingenious thing about about Lavrov, he has come up with this notion, which is absolutely true. He's pointed out that the Western system of international law, human rights, um, and all the rest of it, is culturally specific. Mm -hmm. He has said each country should have the right to develop its own systems in accordance, and he lists them, in accordance with its history, its nationhood, its culture, and also its religion. In other words, why have we seen all these apparently bizarre countries all more or less lining up behind Russia without necessarily talking about mm. it? Because the West is seen merely as using human rights as another cloak to resume the empires that we once wielded over these people in the 19th century. And Blair, of course, is the outstanding example. The neoliberalist interventionist doctrines that were applied in in, in Iraq, uh, that the, were the applied ethical foreign policy, the ethical foreign policy that were applied in Libya, that were applied in Afghanistan, with absolute catastrophe. Because again, of course, it goes back to the point that I was making before. Because these things are um, culturally specific, especially all of those countries are essentially tribal societies. You cannot have modern systems of law in a tribal society because there is no loyalty beyond the family group, beyond the tribal group. Why, for example, has Japan been able to westernize, despite, of course, its vast differences, but why have the fundamentals of Western civilization taken in Japan? Because you already had a highly sophisticated native political system in which clans, although there were clans, were not the basis of mm. politics. Why is Scotland such a primitive country? Because it's still based on a clan structure. And if you I'm don't, gonna, believe, I'm going to put primitive in, in quotation marks. Uh, I think, just, I think just, if you, I think if you look at the if you look at the clan struggle between the two fish, uh, you know, bet between sturgeon and salmon, you will see there exactly the sort of Scottish politics of of the reign of Mary Stuart, where the the basic basic political instrument was the murder bond. And if you look at the, the, the relationship between salmon, the hatred of, 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 of salmon and sturgeon is based purely, it has, there's no dispute over policy, it is simply that they've come to hate each other and they would like to see each other dead. I'm going to wind this up. I'm going to wind this up by I, reminding us <laughs> <laughs> before the lawyers get involved. Uh, uh, you've got a YouTube channel, David Starkey Talks, which I want to draw our viewers' attention to, uh, a, a collection of some of what you've uh, been doing in recent times. And two thoughts to close with. Um, my 16-year-old uh, wants to f go to Cambridge and read history. She wants to be a professor. She wants to be a medieval history professor. She's 16. She'll end up working in a call centre. Who knows? You know, but that's, that's <laughs> the object. Tell her why she's making the right choice. And a final thought, if you would. Peter Hitchens was sitting where you are last week, and I asked him for reasons to be optimistic. He couldn't come up with any. And in fact, he questioned the, the, the idea itself. He says there are, there are better reasons to be pessimistic. Pessimism is a, a better starting point for looking at the world. Those two thoughts. Why should she become a historian? Well, if she is genuinely committed, if she has a passion, if she's prepared for an enormous amount of hard work, because doing it properly is hugely hard work. And if also she is prepared 
to subordinate everything she thinks to what she finds out. She might actually make a go of it. Why, why be optimistic? Why continue living otherwise? The, the instinct to live rather than just give up and die is the foundation of optimism. We are, we are built, it seems to me, I think you are, I know I am. I'm built with this wish to survive. I was born a handicapped child. I had many problems, but there was somewhere in me. I remember the stories told of me by my grandmother. The boy's got a big back. He'll be all right. There is that instinct. We are instinct. We are brains at the service of instinct. And that instinct to life that you see in the newborn child, when he or she bellows and screams, I'm here. I want to be here. David Starkey, thank you. Thank you.